Live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Pete Najarian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Tonight on Fast, the low is locked in. That is the message tonight from Fundstrat's Tom Lee, why he thinks the worst of the selling is over for the near term. Plus, we're all over the after-hours action and shares a Zoom video. The stock off its after-hours lows on earnings with the company's call just getting underway. We'll break down the latest from the quarter and later. We're trading Target, the retailer gearing up for results tomorrow, how our traders are positioned heading into that print. We start off with the war trade kicking into high gear. Take a look at some of the groups seeing big gains today. Defense stocks like L3, Northrop, Lockheed soaring as a Russian-Ukraine conflict rages on. Oil names also in rally mode. Energy, the best-performing sector in the S&P 500. Oxy, Devon, EOG leading the way. And cybersecurity stocks surging, too, as investors brace for Moscow to retaliate against sanctions with online attacks. CrowdStrike, CyberArk, Sentinel-1, just some of the names jumping today. But despite all these gains across these sectors, the broader market, end of the day, pretty flat. S&P and Dow both broke at the two-day win streaks while the Nasdaq managed to eke out yet another gain. So what does this kind of market action tell you, Tim? Well, uh, the first thing I'm going to say, I, I, if you'd asked me yesterday at this time what I thought the markets were going to do today, I, I, I'm dead wrong. Um, and, you know, we, we, Guy says this a lot. By the way, Guy's uh, usually right more than wrong. And, and I, but this is one of those days where, um, and if you read the press Sunday evening, if you were on Twitter, if you read very smart people in the markets, there were discussions of, again, things related to disruptions, not that we were going to have a Lehman-type day, but that if you think about the potential for the pipes getting clogged and a lack of liquidity, and we're going to need the Fed to get out there and the ECB to say that they're going to provide extra dollar lines. And, and look, the, 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 we didn't get that. We got to a place where um, some of the obvious trades were, were, were ones that were hard at work. So yes, Treasuries rallied. Uh, yes, oil rallied, although I would have told you um, oil would have been up north of 10 percent. And I still think that that's a trade that you, you have plenty of room on. I think the, the, the discussions around where risk is and where markets are, are are things that continue to evolve. There were headlines, of course, around uh, the fact that there would be peace discussions. There would be treat, there'd be some kind of a discussion, I should say. Um, so when you think about the day that was, it, it, it felt kind of like a relief in some sense. But but in no way, especially when you look at volatility and you look at the potential here, uh, did we get that? But again, uh, gold, oil. Uh, treasuries, uranium. These are places where I think investors still have major opportunities. And again, this whole uh, offset of nuclear against energy is another big thing to think about. Guy, we do like to play this game. If you had told me 24 hours before what the set of circumstances would be, and could you guess the direction of the market or a stock or whatnot? I mean, I think that you probably fall into into what Tim described. And we, we probably all came into the session thinking that the markets would be down sharply given everything that's happened. So given that they were not... Does that tell you that perhaps we put in a quote-unquote war bottom? That's a good, I mean, war bottom. I mean, first of all, let me just echo what Tim said. I'm wrong most of the time, and I would have been dead wrong on this one because it did feel, some of the rhetoric coming out last night felt really catastrophic. Last time we heard language like that was probably 12 or so years ago in terms of, you know, the financial crisis. With that said, you know, I'm with Tim. I'll say this. I don't know about war bottom side. I'll, tell, I'll say one thing. I think the market learns how to deal with things like this extraordinarily quickly. Uh, my concern all along has been the pivot of the Fed. I will say in terms of trades, I remember it was over the summer, I think Pedro 
power pitch Lockheed Martin had a couple sideways to slightly lower months, but that's making an all-time high, as is General Dynamics, as is Northrop. And I got to tell you, all three of those at about 15 times next year's numbers still look like they have some room. And in terms of yields, this one I know we got collectively right. We thought yields would go to 2% in a 10-year. It did. And then we thought on a market sell-off, which we're in the midst of, you'd see yields back up. And I thought twos, tens would go to 30 basis points in the form of 1.5% in twos and 1.8 in the tens. And I got to tell you, Mel, we're real close there. And I echo, P, uh, echo Tim on energy. OIH at these levels is too cheap. The components, the three names, specifically Halliburton and Schlumberger, are better run companies today than they were when oil was here last time, and they're not trading anywhere where they should be trading. I think OIH can go to 285. Yeah, I agree. I like OIH. That's sort of the way I'm playing my oil exposure. But I agree with Tim and Guy. I, I'm sort of a night owl, so late at night, I was looking, the futures were down 110, which is like, okay. That, night owl, by the way, a decent cigar back in the day. <laughs> Just FYI for the folks at home. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I was sort of thinking we would have a pretty ugly day. I looked at volatility today. It was, you know, 33 maybe at the, I mean, it was, it was, if you didn't know any of the headlines related to Ukraine, related to Russia, sanctions, you would have thought, oh, this is kind of a crappy day. And that the, you did have all of those things actually happening. It was kind of a miraculous day. The banks, which you could make a case of why the banks should have been down more than they were. I was kind of surprised that they weren't happily, but um, I think there's a risk there. And I don't know, I didn't do much or anything really at all today of any significance because somehow this doesn't feel like it's fully priced in. We mm -hmm. don't know what there's still a lot of uncertainty. And as you and I were talking before the show, markets hate uncertainty. They're OK with bad news as long as they know what it is or good news. That's great. But uncertainty is sort of the worst case to be. And I do think we still see some uncertainty before us in the next couple of weeks before we have more clarity. So. I'm sort of on the sidelines right now. Yeah. Pete, we mentioned, quote, unquote, war trades at the top of the show. I mean, are, are there areas you think there's still opportunity? Um, and, and Guy mentioned your power pitch, as Guy likes to call it, mm -hmm. on Lockheed Martin. And we just had a headline not too long ago yeah. saying Senate Republicans are going to ask for an increase in defense spending, because, of course, you need defense spending in order to ward off the threats from a Russia and a China. So, so maybe the stars are aligning for this trade. I think so. As you mentioned, it hit a high today, so that's pretty impressive. I like what we've seen out of that name and all those names in the defense sector, Mel. They've really been impressive, and understandably so. I think the, the key is the upgrade today, of course, of Lockheed is really the, the primary reason where it really got a lot of uh, that steam to move to the upside, I think, as well, especially when they were talking about the international side. I think we always focus on the U.S. government, right, and, and our defense spending. That's not their only client out there. And because of that, there's a lot more to the rest of the world. And the rest of the world is looking at what's going on right now and saying, hey, you know what? We need to bump this up. And, and whether or not you want to look at Germany or wherever you want to look, you will see exactly what I'm talking about, especially with Germany, where they are definitely going to be bumping it up big time in terms of a lot of the orders into the future. So I think that's really interesting. By the way, all three of you guys, don't kick yourselves. Until the final 22 minutes... And the Dow rallied 500 points and the Nasdaq rallied 170 points. Uh, you were definitely dead on on what you were expecting to see in the market. But that's the market that we're in, Mel. If you consider the fact that we were up 1,500 points 
on the Dow in on Thursday, the last two hours of Thursday, add into Friday. I mean, it's just been a crazy market. We know the volatility's there. Karen mentioned it over 33. In the last 22 minutes, it went from 31 and a quarter all the way down beneath 30 to close out at 29.75 or somewhere in that range. So it gives you a little bit of a perspective of just how wild and the velocity of the moves that we are seeing right now. And it's not just defense, by the way. I, I know you mentioned cybersecurity is another area where people are going. The energy patch, I'll tell you what, they keep on buying options in there. That isn't even close to over. Everybody who thinks that a lot of this is Ukraine driven, they're wrong. There's a lot more to this trade than just Ukraine. A lot of it having to do with the fact that CapEx was cut out for so many years and now all of a sudden hey demand is there so i think there's a lot more room to the upside i'm not looking at the oih though i'm looking at the xop and i think that's where you get your best bang for your buck those beta names that are were part of that etf are mm -hmm. absolutely on fire on days like today the flip side to all of this is is the the huge downdrafts that we saw in russian stocks that trade in on other exchanges like in london Gazprom was down by as much as 60-something percent uh, during the London session. Tim, you navigated Russia during some crazy times. How do you look at this? And, and I want to put politics aside completely here. But how do you look at this? Because these are some companies that actually have assets to well, them. They have assets and they have great balance sheets. And, and, and you know, I own a company called Surrogate Nefty Gas in Prefform, which has been a 14% div payer on average for the last few years. And, and remember, Russian oil companies do particularly well when the ruble's devalued um, because, again, their, their, their sales, when they can make them now, this is a different environment, but um, are, are in dollars and in their costs are in local. So um, Gazprom trades down 50% today. Luke Oil down 50% today. The Russian local market was closed. But we say this all the time. I say, you know, you make the most money when things go from terrible to just bad. This is beyond terrible on some level because people are, are questioning their, their ability to, to operate in a global environment. But um, I think there are a lot of people that need uh, still Russian energy out there in the real world. And leaving aside what could be uh, wonderful uh, thoughts around some type of a settlement, um, not holding my breath on that in the short term, but, but if you look at the balance sheets of Luke Oil uh, and, and if you look at Gazprom's history in 1998 when, when other companies uh, in Russia and in Eastern Europe were not paying, actually Gazprom worked out really all of their debts. And, and, and Russian sovereign debt was one of the best things you could own. The, the Russia 12 and 3 quarters of 2028, which was issued in 1998, uh, at one point traded I think as low as 18 cents. Um, and you can do the risk reward on that. It was one of the greatest purchases of all time. Yeah. You know, the blood on the streets is always interesting to me, even if it's my own, which some of it is, some of it isn't. But so to Tim's point, Gazprom bonds were so fascinating to me. These are bonds. I don't know if we have a chart, but they they mature on Monday of next week. They went from the high 80s to 60. So if they actually pay next week and they do have the resources to pay, how that act technically gets done, I'm not quite sure. But you would make 40 points on those bonds in a week. That's kind of amazing. If you're like, what's the catch? Well, there's a lot of clear catches like, you know, can you actually can they pay? I think they probably can. I don't know. I don't own them. But just the idea of things trading down so dramatically, mm -hmm. I can't believe they went from they were fair price that day and now they're fair price this day. Something's off. And when you have for selling like you had in these bonds or in, in other equities, Russian equities, that's interesting to me. Yeah. Well, let's drill down on today's big rally in the cyber stocks. Joining us now is Andrew Nowinski, senior equity analyst at Wells Fargo. Andrew, great to have you with us. Um, when we think about possible Russian cyber attacks, what sorts of attacks are they most likely uh, to, to mount? And which companies are best positioned for those specific kinds of attacks? 
Hi, Melissa. Thank you very much uh, for having me out back again. So um, you're absolutely right. I think we definitely will see more cyber attacks in, in the U.S. as well as other impacted countries. So far, we've seen over 70 government agency websites from, from the Ukrainian governments uh, taken down by uh, denial of service attacks uh, over the last week. I think we'll also see a number of, um, you know, attacks uh, such as email phishing attacks. And worse yet, uh, which I think everyone is, is really worried about, is, is uh, the zero-day threats or zero-day malware and ransomware attacks that, that will likely come, uh, come next. Now, what the best position companies uh, in the cyberspace to uh, really sadly benefit from the the expected onslaught of cyber uh, attacks would be uh, CrowdStrike, Palo Alto, and, and actually Cloudflare, I think, stands to benefit from uh, a lot of the DDoS uh, attacks that we've seen so far. Andrew, we've tried to make a case for these names for a while. The pushback we get uh, all the time is valuations people can't wrap their head around. I think collectively we've tried to make the point that at least in this group, valuation is not as important as some other groups. Is that an, a logical argument? Yeah, Guy, thanks for the question. I mean, it certainly is uh, uh, a logical argument. I, it, it's hard to, you know, really uh, forecast the impact of, of how much additional spending you'll get and how much growth you can get out of these companies. But if you look at like a Palo Alto trading about 15 times EV to sales, that's a company that should be trading or a stock that should be trading, you know, well north of 20 times EV to sales. Um, and they are the single best positioned vendor to stop a ransomware attack. There's no better platform out there that can stop the most sophisticated attacks. And then you look at uh, like a Palo Alto trading about eight and a half, eight, nine times EV to sales, 25 times EV to free cash flow. Another um, just really well positioned company to to stop not only ransomware attacks, but also as more companies move to that zero trust platform, uh, they've got the ability, they've got the network, the, the endpoints, um, uh, as well as the threat intelligence uh, layered in to to really stop those sophisticated attacks. And that's that integration of all these assets is really what um, companies need to stop the most sophisticated attacks. You know, trading at just nine times EV to sales, this is another one we think can really should really trade in the in the perhaps the low teens, uh, providing a lot more upside to where it's currently at. Cloudflare is a little more difficult because it is one of the most expensive stocks in software right now, well over thirty times EV to sales. But they they have the single best platform for stopping these DDoS DDoS attacks that we're seeing. I think the biggest one we've seen so far has been about a two terabyte per second attack, and they're very easy to launch. Cloudflare can absorb a hundred terabyte terabyte per second attack and not even notice it. So if you move your website to Cloudflare's network, it's safe. It's not going down. Your business will continue. So there's there's really it is difficult to um, convince someone that there's there's a lot more upside on the multiple side, but the numbers and the estimates are certainly going higher. Last quick question, Andrew, and that is when an attack is already you know underway, which company gets called first? So so who will benefit from cleaning it up as opposed to preventing? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of incident response firms out there that that you would you know call to. I think one of your next guests or you know uh, uh, Kevin Mandia with Mandia certainly is one of the best in class uh, incident response firms that are out there for responding to these breaches. CrowdStrike also has um, as good uh, of of an incident response firm. Um, and then and then in Palo Alto, same thing. They they acquired a company uh, for, for incident response purposes as well. So you look at. You look at like a CrowdStrike and a Palo Alto where they have the best in class products to defend against the attack. If you are attacked, they can also respond and clean up those breaches as well. So you, 
you sort of get the benefit of both both scenarios with with those stocks. Andrew, great to speak with you. Thank you, Andrew Nowinski. Pete, where do you stand on this trade? Yeah, you know, I agree with the panel and everybody talking about this, and I know they've been talking about this for a long time. You look at the multiples, it's really difficult, Mel, even if they have any kind of a multiple. But I'm looking at CrowdStrike, for instance, and today we did have options getting bought in there. And so I, I t- tagged along because they were buying the upside calls that expire on Friday. They were buying the 200 strike calls while the stock was trading at about 189. But what I like about this trade is it was down towards 150. It was much higher when it was at its highs just in the last year or so. So I think there's upside there. And I, and I think it's a trade that can be put on based upon the fact that we know there's going to be demand. We know they're going to be pushing. And at some point in time, maybe all of these different names that are in the cybersecurity space will start to see that actual P.E. show up as a P.E. that's palatable for all of us. But for right now, I would just do it with options. That gives you the best risk reward. And that's why I bought those calls today in CrowdStrike. Guy, you have a you, you tweeted about Palo Alto today. You've been following the space for a long time. Yeah, and I think collectively we've been talking about this. New all-time high today. Again, you know, people get wrapped up in valuations, especially obviously over the last few months when valuations have been a concern for everything. I think the point we've been trying to make is that you shouldn't really be all that focused on valuation in this space, which is why I asked the question. You know, in terms of CrowdStrike, I think Pete makes a good point. This stock is not at a new all-time high. As a matter of fact, it's significantly lower than that 298.48 level we saw a few months ago. Not that that means anything necessarily, um, but I think you might get some bang for your buck. I'll throw another name in there just because why not is Zscaler, which is also sold off significantly since its all-time high. That might be worth a play for a bounce here as well. Coming up, stocks dropping as the falloff from Russia's invasion continues, but is the bottom in. Fundstrap's Tom Lee will join us to break down his call on the markets. But first, we're all over the after-hours action in Zoom. Shares on the move after reporting. we got the details next when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Zoom. Shares coming off after hours lows with the earnings call now underway. Let's get to Frank Holland, who's got the details. Hey, Frank. Hey there, Melissa. Shares of Zoom down just about 3%, but well off the double-digit lows just after the release, where the company reported a beat on revenue and a big beat on EPS. However, soft guidance that appears to have some investors concerned. First, let's look at the numbers from this quarter, showing a lot of growth. Revenue up 21%, 35% increase in enterprise customers on the call. CFO Kelly Steckelberg says she expects that to be where Zoom sees growth going forward. Also, 9% growth in companies that have 10 or more employees. However, the full-year guidance tells a bit of a different story. The revenue guidance, both the top and the bottom, about $200 million below estimates. The EPS guidance, even at the top end, $0.90 cents below estimates. Zoom also had making some other news, appointing a new board member. Bill McDermott, CEO of ServiceNow and former co-CEO of SAP, will join the board, effective tomorrow, replacing Bart Swanson, an early investor who served on that board for eight years. McDermott saying in a release he believes the platform has more room for growth. And tomorrow on Squawk Box, the CFO of Zoom, Kelly Steckelberg, she's going to appear in a first on CNBC interview to discuss the results and also the outlook for Zoom and what appears to be uh, uh, as we inch towards a post-COVID business world. That'll be first on CNBC. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Frank, thanks. Frank Holland. Um, Karen, what do you make of this name at this point in time? 
Well, so when you think about what they reported for next year, Mm -hmm. what they guided to, that multiple, it's not so crazy, yet it is still high. And I think the sentiment around those pandemic trades, right, the Pelotons, the Zooms, I think that's kind of over now. So given that that hyper growth might be over, maybe this... It's not a hyper-growth multiple. It's a growthy multiple. Right. It's not a hyper-growth multiple. I've never been a Zoom owner, um, but I, th- this isn't so crazy. So if there's a lot of selling, that might be somewhere where I would get interested. It's down from, I don't know where it peaked, high 300s, probably higher than that. I don't know. I still think it's here to stay, but now the multiple is getting to be more palatable. Mm-hmm. Not quite yet for me, but it could be a couple of bad days. They also authorized a billion-dollar share buyback, yeah. um, which could help put a floor under the stock. It, it was a $550 stock at its peak. If, if you liked Zoom pre-COVID at $118 or $120 in March of 2020, you love it here um, based upon the, the growth story that was there. And sure, they, they pulled forward a lot. And yes, the competitive landscape uh, is is certainly significantly more involved. Can I ask you a question? Yes, you can raise your yeah. hand. No. And I, mean, I don't know I, why you know, I'm I, raising I, my hand. I can nice. ask no, whatever the heck I want to ask on this show of whoever <laughs> I want you. to ask up. Um, but why is it that if you loved it then, you should love it now? Because we've already, we've, we've gone through the gamut of their peak demand. We, we've played that scenario out. And so what else is there at this point? Why should we love it? Whereas pre-pandemic, you're thinking about the potential. We saw that potential materialize and then fade away. So why is it that we should love it here now? Okay, now I, I call on you, Tim. No, no, hi, how are you? Um, so <laughs> I, I, I think that this is a company that, that has the exact same market valuation. And I mean, I'm looking at a... Uh, you know, a forty billion dollar company, maybe thirty five now um, or thirty seven and change, and and uh, a enterprise base and and to me a subscription base um, that is, that dwarfs where they were, and and so on a multiple of sales and on a a, a growth trajectory, you pulled in I think a, a lot of that enormous growth. But I think first of all, Zoom established themselves as the brand in COVID. Now, to the extent that that may not do much in the future, um, they're not necessarily the Googling or or you know all these other dynamics. But but again, this is a company that to me has a subscription revenue in a recurring revenue stream uh, that's about two and a half times where we were. That, to me, at the same market cap, uh, there's no question it's more interesting. Um, Guy, how would you answer the question that I posed? And did he raise his hand? Hold on. No, I'm calling on him. (laughs) It's like when you're in class and you're trying to, like, duck the teacher, but the teacher calls on you anyway. Okay, Guy, go. Pre-COVID, I think Zoom is probably the only game in town to answer the question. I think a lot of competition has come since that. Uh, so my, my response would be, look, even with uh, current levels, even if you take the top end of the full-year guide, which, by the way, I'm shocked that they gave, but even if you take the top end, they're guiding down by about 20%-ish, and it's still trading close to 38 times this year's numbers. That's not all that cheap. So I think you could actually do a complete round trip of where it was pre-COVID, probably 110 to 115, and just because I'm here... A night owl is an individual that likes to stay up at all hours of the evening as opposed to a white owl or tipperillo, which is something that's smoked. Oh, that's a, great, that's, that's a great point. Sorry. And it's not a good cigar, but uh, yeah. News so Karen's not, a, not talking about no. cigars All right, I'm glad we straightened all. that out. Uh, moving on here. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. 
Is the low locked in? Fun Strat's Tom Lee calling a bottom for stocks. While he thinks the worst of the selling is over for the near term. We're breaking it down next. Plus, the earnings keep rolling in. And we're checking out Target ahead of its report. So is this retail worth a try on? The traders dig into that name next. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. The U.S. reopening is gaining steam. Tomorrow's State of the Union, uh, at tomorrow's State of the Union, the mask is optional. New York City ends its vaccine mandate next Monday, and states from New York to California are dropping mask mandates entirely. The backdrop could bode well for reopening trades. Tom Lee's been bullish on them for over a year. He runs Fundstrat Global Advisors as a CNBC contributor. Tom, great to have you with us. Yeah, great to see you. You know, we were talking about um, Russia, Ukraine at the top of the show, but this sort of folds in. It's all the markets. Is the reopening and the strength of the possible reopening, is, is that sort of offsetting any sort of downside action we could be seeing from, from the impact of war? Uh, I mean, to an extent, yes. Uh, I think there is pent-up demand because, you know, for the last two years, people have been home and there's been a lot of anxiety. And I think, you know, even Starbucks had noted their are more unhinged customers. So I think as masks come off and, and we move away from pandemic thinking, I do think businesses start to see workers come back, business travel comes back, and I think it is all a virtuous circle. Um, but I think the bigger sort of reason markets are stabilizing is is very likely because the Fed, you know, which people thought was turning quite hawkish, ends up having to make, I think, an incrementally dovish pivot. A dovish pivot meaning to 25 or even more dovish than that? Uh, yes, to 25. I mean, and I, I, I would just say it's as they, as Tom Luddy, former JP Morgan vice chairman likes to say, less bad is good. And I think if the Fed is, if the expectation has gone from 50 basis points to 25, I, I think that is incrementally dovish. Hey, Tom, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. So if they were to proceed in that dovish uh, scenario of 25 and several 25s, what's, what's your outlook for the market then and the economy? Um, well, you know, and as that chart shows, you know, the, the market expectations have dropped sharply. But I, I think that the question we'll probably ask at the end of this year, and that's a long ways away, is whether, you know, a 2% tenure or even two and a quarter is bad for risk assets or even bad for the economy. And I think markets will probably conclude that it's still supportive of PE expansion. And, and that's because uh, today, you, you'd still be paying a 40 multiple for a 10-year bond, and investment grade is still going to be in the 30s, and high yield is going to be mid-20s. So equities, which are now sub-20, still look like a pretty attractive investment bet. And of course, that also feeds into the idea that if rates are rising, you're not going to make money on credit, but you'll make money in equity. So there's a guaranteed TINA. How much time do you think uh, market participants are underestimating the strength of this reopening? And I'm asking this because I feel like every step along the way, people have been skeptical of it. You've been pretty bullish, um, and and your view has, has largely turned out to be right. Uh, I think investors are still uh, have low conviction on reopening, and that's because when they talk about uh, supply chain glitches or inflationary pressures, they tend to think of it as margin pressure for stocks that are reopening. So I think there's a tendency to think, 
the durability of any rally is short-lived. I mean, you could, you could see it in the way stocks really sell off on any word of inflation. But it's not that different than how investors were extremely skeptical of energy stocks in 2021 because they didn't think energy would be around. But even in 2022, energy has been performing pretty well. Um, and before we let you go, Tom, I got to ask you about Bitcoin. Um, that's part of your your beef trade, although it's Bitcoin equities. I'm curious, you know, are you surprised at how Bitcoin has traded? I would have thought that with the onset of the skirmish, uh, the war going on in Ukraine, that Bitcoin would trade higher, not because it's a, a safe haven at all or a store of value, but but maybe for other reasons, like the notion that there needs to be an alternative payment system developed and, and other ways to move money around the world um, other than traditional means. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it depends on, on your measurement, uh, you know, where we start to measure performance. But I, I think over the weekend, uh, there were several things that made Bitcoin quite useful, right? We know that the the Ukrainian government, the prime minister, was actually making a request for donations in crypto. And with the swift actions, we know Russia, I mean, if you look at the ruble exchanges, you know, Bitcoin volumes were through the roof. So in times of uncertainty and when when essentially access to traditional financial systems gets cut off, people do turn to crypto. Uh, I don't know if this was the moment Bitcoin had to go parabolic, but I think it's really showing its use case again. And I think Bitcoin equity, so we like you know, the B is Bitcoin, B, B, the E is Bitcoin equities. Uh, you know, they did quite well today because, again, U.S. mining uh, mining is really moving into the U.S. So I think Bitcoin equities, especially whether it's Silvergate or the miners, are actually turning to equities that could actually boost performance in a portfolio. Tom, thank you for your time. Good to see you. Thank you. Tom Lee of Fundstrat. Um, Pete, how are you playing reopening and or Bitcoin? Well, you know, Bitcoin obviously has become front and center. I, the one one thing, Mel, I just want to pivot somewhere. Sorry, I don't. I know you asked that question, but what I'm what I'm Should curious about, and I'm I'm just, <laughs> and I'm and I'm having trouble with this. Uh, you know me and how long I've been talking about oil and energy, and I continue to talk about it. And Tom's talking about it even more aggressively than myself. I don't understand why that's not some sort of a headwind for his bullish case. Because I think as, as we watch oil and we watch energy and he's talking about, you know, looking at certain levels and it's pricing in as if oil's trading at 50 right now versus the OIH and all the rest of, uh, of what he's laying out there for energy. Um, it just makes me wonder, how, how can he be so bullish on the broader market? I would think that that would be a definite headwind, not, not to totally stop the markets, but to slow it down. And, and so I... I'm just a little bit puzzled by that. I, I understand his, his, you know, his point and where he thinks the markets are going. He says we've already hit a low. I don't know that we've hit the low yet either, Mel. Uh, so I, uh, I love what I, what I hear from Tom, but I just sort of question a few of those things as we're thinking about it. As far as crypto, it's an interesting thing how now all of a sudden it seems to be so accepted that people are trying to figure out all these different ways that they can move the, 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 the dollars around. I think it's really... It actually should be something that really does boost up crypto, I think, over the next several months. Pro tip, turn your ringer off when you're on live television. <laughs> I, Tim I, Seymour. I, I, <laughs> I don't know if you don't can hear it over say. there. Is that um, Apple? I could quickly, yeah. have we hit the lows, do you think? No. Um, and I think uh, this is a tremendous 
opportunity for traders out there. I think there's a ton of volatility. I still think we are in a downward trend. I, I think you, you're, there's very little. Uh, like, I agree with a lot of what he had to say. I, I also think about a world where everything that's happened in the last couple of weeks is inflationary and a headwind to growth. And, and the Fed is hiking into this. And, and this comes out of a period where the Fed you know, gave, gave away 25 percent of U.S. GDP to people for free. And, and, and that's run out. So, uh, you know, that's my bigger term. I, I, I think there are great opportunities. Look, the reopening trade to me is where you should be amongst other places, including the Las Vegas Sands, which I talk about, U.S. banks, which I think are overdone, certainly over European banks, especially, again, as rates start to drop. It's terrible for EU, let alone the Russia exposure. All right. Coming up right on target, the retailer set to deliver earnings tomorrow morning. So is this stock worth a try on? We'll break that down. But first, we're all over the after hours action in Lucid. Shares on the move after reporting results will bring you the details next when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Lucid Motor shares down by almost 14 percent after reporting the conference call is underway. Let's get to Phil LeBeau, who spoke with CEO Peter Rawlinson just moments ago. Phil. Uh, Melissa, the reason for the stock being under pressure is because of the guidance. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Let me quickly give you the numbers for the fourth quarter. A loss of $0.64 cents a share on revenue of $26.4 million. But that's not why the stock's under pressure. Here's the reason why. The company dramatically cutting its guidance for 2022 production. For some perspective, the guidance was to build 20,000 vehicles this year. The new guidance only building 12 to 14,000 vehicles. Peter Rawlinson tells me it's because of supply chain and quality challenges. In fact, during our conversation, he said the company is now considering alternative supply sourcing. One of the issues he talked about, the quality of the glass for the Lucid Air. It's not up to the standards they want. As a result, they're going to have to slow down production. That's just one issue. There are some other ones as well. He does say that demand is very strong. In fact, when you look at the reservations for Lucid, now exceeding 25,000. The last time they gave us an update on reservations was back on November 15th, and at the time, it was uh, 17,000. So that's an increase of 47%, which is good. You do want more reservations, but you've got to cut your production. That's the reason the stock is under pressure. One other note, the company has confirmed that it will be building a plant in Saudi Arabia. So if you take that plant, which is not going to come on time, online for some time, along with the Arizona production plant, which will grow in production over the next couple of years, the company says its capacity should hit a half million vehicles by mid-decade. Now, they haven't said exactly what that means, 25, 26, whatever, but by mid-decade, they expect it to be at a half million vehicles capacity. We're going to hop back onto the conference call, and we'll have more in just a little bit. One last note, Melissa, that 2507, 2510, where the stock's trading, Mm -hmm. that's pretty much where the stock was when the IPO happened back in Mm -hmm. July. Um, Phil, quick question. Your conversation with uh, Peter I heard you talk about in the closing bell. It seems like he stressed the quality issues as opposed to supply yes. chain issues. Um, you mentioned the, the glass, the carpet's not up to snuff. Yep. I mean, do they have chips? Do they have the other sort of vital components? Or is it all about them not no, picking it's not the right just, manufacturer it's, of, of, of I these I think it's a things. number of things, Melissa. It's a number of things. And I'm sure during the conference call, the chip issue uh, will come up in terms of, of making sure that's there. Look, We've talked about this for some time for all automakers. The supply chain is stressed, stretched and stressed 
across the board. Uh, he just pointed out those two in terms of the quality aspect not being up to snuff in terms of what they're looking for. But we'll see how much they talk about the chip component of this uh, during the conference call, which, again, has just begun. Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau, he'll keep us you posted bet. on uh, Lucid's call. Guy, it just strikes me as they're throwing everything out there as to why they can't uh, meet production or come anywhere close to the original forecast. Did you say just something about carpet? Is there something in my ear? Was that carpet. really what carpet. we were just talking Cars about? Cars have carpet, and apparently the quality is not up to snuff for the Lucid carpet. Yeah, well, people buying Lucid at, at $55 in November were anything but, by the way, number one. And even with, I mean, even if you want to say they're going to do $2 billion in revenue this, this coming year, that was their fourth quarter just reported, and I'll give them that. You're still talking about a company that's trading over 25 times revenue. So it's a hope and a dream at this point. Good for them. I hope they figure out their carpet situations. Stanley Steamer has a great 800 number if they want it. I can provide it offline. I think the stock goes lower from here. one 888 Pete where are you in the EV trade? <laughs> I got to tell you, that was really good. That was good. You know, Lucid, you know, the, the problems are, are actually great problems, though, right? I mean, the problems are that they just can't keep up with the demand, and they promised too much. They promised 25000 and they want to deliver 12000 That is not the way you want to run your business. You can't overpromise, and that's exactly what they did. I remember there were times, though, where Elon Musk had some issues as well along the way. So I'm not saying this is Tesla, but I am saying it's an interesting company. They certainly have the demand there. They continue to say that they are the best in the world at what they are doing. I don't really believe that. I still think Tesla's on top. Matter of fact, we had huge buyers in Tesla today in the options world, and I jumped onto that again as well. So I'm riding that. But those kind of names, Lucid, Tesla, and some of those EV names, Mel, you've got to be in options. You've got to trade them. Those are difficult investments to ever want to hold on to in terms of stock, in my opinion. Coming up, target earnings on deck. It's been a rough couple months for the retailer, but there is a turnaround in store. Could it there be in this name? We are digging into that next. Plus, defense stocks getting a pop as the fallout from Russia's invasion continues, and that's got options activity surging. The details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Target rallying into the close after spending most of the day in the red. The retailers on deck to report earnings before the bell tomorrow. Um, Karen, this is a favorite of yours. What are you looking for? So I'm looking for, uh, hopefully, a turnaround and some improvement on some of the things that bothered the street and their earnings last quarter. And those were labor and supply chain issues and then also shrinkage. That was sort of an odd one that we saw a couple times. I'm hoping that some of those things have abated and the street was disappointed with the margins. And I understand that is disappointing. But when you think about the reaction of the stock from a high teens multiple to now 15 below a market multiple for a company that has really transformed itself. And I think they're not giving back that market share that they've gotten. So I think that the pandemic stocks had a great run. Target, the growth was extraordinary. We know it's coming in some, but the multiple, I think, has come in more than it should have for a company that's really hitting their stride. I think they're going to get over some of those short-term issues. There was actually an announcement today. They're adding 250 uh, Ulta stores. They're going to get up to 800. Those have been great. I actually own Ulta as well. So I like the stock. Uh, you know, I would say go home long. I was buying it here. I would buy it right here. Uh, we'll see tomorrow on the call. I try and be in the head of the viewers out there as well as our traders. So I will ask the question. Shrinkage. Shrinkage refers to 
The, the loss from Seinfeld theft. Show. Loss right. from theft, correct. Exactly. Okay. Right. Oh. I just wanted to <laughs> clarify that. <laughs> guy. Um, Pete Nigerian, uh, you, you like Target yeah. always have. <laughs> yeah, this is a forever hold for me since Brian Cornell was hired and he's done all the right things. I think the one thing that I would say to Karen, though, is do not expect to see those labor numbers get any better at all. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. they continue to pay more and more and more. But all that being said, they've had they've been very sticky with they've been what they've been doing with the digital side of things that obviously kicked off during COVID and they really took off in terms of that side of things. But I, I do you look at it 15 times, you look at five billion uh, in cash flow. This is an unbelievably cheap stock. I think you've got to own it. I own it and I own it more and more. I've continued to add to it over the years. And I probably, on any kind of a dip tomorrow, if labor was their main issue, I'd be a buyer once again. Because I think margins will get hurt a little bit, but I think they'll be able to make up for that over time. Quickly, Walmart or Target guy? Hmm. Target, oddly (laughs) enough, the problem that Karen cited, you could probably buy something at Target for, number one. Number two, I think there's a chance you get 50% retracement of that recent low in the all-time high around 270. 227, not out of the cards, and I'm with Pete on valuation. Target at these levels. All right, do not miss an exclusive interview with Target Chairman and CEO Brian Cornell. That is tomorrow, 7 a.m. Eastern Time. We'll be breaking down the company's quarter right here on CNBC. Coming up, Lockheed Martin seeing a boost as the fallout from Russia's invasion continues. And that had options traders piling into this defense stock. We'll tell you how they're playing this one next. And as we head out, a message from CNBC contributor Robert, Roger Ferguson as CNBC celebrates Black History. I always have hoped that we'll make progress in changing the financial future of the black community. The entire future of America depends on it. There's a great deal of evidence that shows that if we close the racial wealth gap and income gap, all of America will be made better off. And we know how to do it through education, through financial literacy, and through products and services that take into consideration the needs of all Americans. Welcome back. Here's a sneak peek at the Kramer Cam. Jim is talking with the CEO of Workday. Catch a full exclusive interview top of the hour on Mad Money. And do not forget, you can have Kramer delivered right to your inbox at the CNBC Investing Club. Sign up now at CNBC.com slash join the club or by using the QR code on your screen. Meantime, check out some of the big defense names on the offensive right now. Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman all surging to 52-week highs. But one options trader is betting on a reversal for one of the names. Mike Coe has the action. Mike. Yeah, virtually all of the defense stocks and defense-related ETFs saw well above average options volume today. The three stocks you just mentioned traded three, four, and five times their 20-day average options volume today. But Lockheed Martin did see one substantial trade in the other direction. It was the April 430, 385, 2 put spread. Somebody bought 5,950 of those, spending $8.40 a piece. That's an outlay of $5 million in premium on a bet that would be worth $27 million if it falls back to the pre-invasion level, possibly hedging along exposure there. Uh, Tim, would you fade or trade these defenses? I would trade them. I, I think about an RTX, which I'm long. You know, first of all, you have some legacy UTX dynamics. You're getting 15 plus percent, I think, EPS growth over the next few years. So this is growth at, at a reasonable price. I think in, in LMT, you've had a pretty good run. There was some concern around that deal with Aerojet that, that the FTC got in the way of. And ultimately, you know, we'll see. And a lot of people just felt that M&A headwinds for the entire sector were something that, that maybe put a lid on things. I, I Look, valuations are not terrible here. I think it's a good environment. 
All right, Mike, thanks. Mike Coe for more Options Action. Be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. Final trade, Pete. I'm going to give you GLD. I think it's going higher. Guy. Z-scaler, sister. Karen. If it's good enough for the E block, it's good enough for the F block final trade. Target. I like it for earnings tomorrow. <laughs> Tim. Oh, great to be with you ladies here at the NASDAQ. I know, fun, right? Sort of it good QT. Feels pretty good. Um, uranium feels pretty good. Bought some more today. URA, uh, ETF, a way to play that. Check it out. All right. Thanks for watching Fast Money. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.